0: Welcome, folks, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. My name is Sam Casten smith and I am joined by Will Bushman. What's new, Sam? Not much. Not much. We're moving into Genesis, further along into Genesis as we wrap up uh, the story of Joseph and his brothers. We have a special guest today who is sitting in, Ms. Brittany Camp. She's going to be launching her own podcast on Christian issues and lifestyle things that affect women and Lots of fun topics. So, hopefully, you'll be able to uh, see that launch in the near future. We're looking forward to it.
1: And hopefully, this is helpful for her because yeah. it's not looking so good.
0: <laughs> she is learning how not to do a podcast today. <laughs> We've had a real rough start. So, <laughs> coming in, oh, by the way, we're in a room where the air conditioner is not working. So, w- welcome, Brittany. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Glad to be here. You know? <laughs> it's all good. All good. So we are jumping in, in Genesis chapter 46, verse 28 today, and just kind of to recap where we've been, and there's a lot to recap, so I'm going to be missing a lot. But the basic story is, Joseph, as a young man, is betrayed by his brother. Ultimately, through God's sovereignty, he's raised up to become the second highest authority in all of Egypt, and from that position, he begins to scheme together a scenario where His brothers are forced to wrestle with the wickedness of their past. And through all of that, their hearts are revealed to be changed. And you see that they go from being these self-absorbed brothers that will betray their own brother to gain silver to where by the end of it you see that these brothers are willing to risk their own freedom and Judah is willing to lay down his very life to free and to rescue one of his brothers for the sake of his dad and his dad's heart. And so last week we talked about how all of this is a picture of the gospel. And in fact, the way that Joseph receives his brothers is such a clear picture of the gospel because they come with heavy hearts. They feel plagued by the wickedness of their past. And before, when he reveals his identity, their tongues are tied. They can't say anything. They can't grovel. They can't even apologize before Joseph is already saying, it's okay, drop your guilt, drop your shame, you are mine, Here's I'm going to let you share in the inheritance, I'm going to use my power and authority to advocate to you to the highest authority in the land, Pharaoh, I'm preparing a place for you, I'm going to give you life-giving bread, and it's before they can do anything to earn it, even though they've been utterly despicable, (laughs) you know, for all of their early life, and you see that God has engineered this whole story to redeem each of these characters. Jacob, from his, his foolish parenting and playing favorites, and he restores the relationship with the ten older sons. You see Joseph, who was an arrogant braggart at the beginning of the story, who's been humbled and forged into a good leader through suffering. You see the older brothers, who were uh, were right really wicked at the beginning of the story, that are now softened, and so God, through all of these tragedies and injustices, has molded this family into the, the the birth pillars of the nation of Israel and God's own people, and through all of this, he's making each of these characters more like himself.
1: Yeah, what a fascinating turnaround for this family, really. Uh, unbelievable. Because as we're tracking through Genesis, it was... And we weren't trying to do this, but we were rather hard on them Uh, and like pretty unvarnished look at the book of Genesis. And now finally, thankfully, we have this huge turnaround really due to the man who Joseph was as a man of God, because he's one of the only ones that we see described as that for the duration of all this. Mm -hmm.
0: And you got to, you know, for a moment, just good on, on Jacob and parenting skills of Rachel, Because Joseph is sold into slavery when he's 17 years old, and he already knows enough about the character of God to hold on to that through the worst forms of suffering and to believe in the faithfulness and the goodness of God. So as hard as we are on Jacob for his parenting skills, he's a really bad parent to the 10, it seems like. (laughs) But he's an incredible parent to Joseph, and you see the impact of raising up kids to, to trust in the goodness of God
1: that through that one little successful thing redeems the whole family. Yeah, that was a confusing one because we spent a lot when we were at that chapter about how he did raise his arrogant son and favored him so much mm-hmm. that, I mean, really his only chance <laughs> was his brothers attacking him in the end, but there is that side of it that, man, yeah, I never thought about that. Yeah,
0: how, how did Joseph get this
1: faith, you know? Yeah, it didn't just pop up in prison. That would be a tough spot to that's find right. it.
0: So it's coming even even through the failures of parenting, that that nugget, that seed that's been planted— flourishes, and in 20-plus years' time, redeems the whole family. Mm-hmm. So we pick up in today, the brothers have the promise, and now they're sent back. You remember, they're sent back to Jacob. They've got carts upon carts, carts for the wives, carts for the kids filled with the best goods of Egypt. And Jacob is like, oh, my goodness, Joseph is alive. He talks about how his heart is revived just on the news that the son, who was once dead, is now alive. And so, again, it's constantly pointing you to how Joseph— in some senses foreshadowing Jesus, and so now we get to see the reunion of the father and the son here in verse 28. So it says, he had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen, and so Jacob gets one chance, one son to choose to kind of facilitate this reunion, and he chooses Judah. So my guess is he's probably heard what Judah did, and now Judah for being willing to lay down his life to rescue Benjamin has become like you know catapulted to become the favorite in Jacob's eyes, and you just imagine you know the scriptures don't tell us this, but just that line invites you to imagine this moment where Jacob and Judah had always been at odds, distrusting you know you're the one who's wrecked my home, kind of a a vibe between them, and now Jacob is sending Judah as kind of the emissary of the family to orchestrate this reunion and so you you have to imagine the behind the scenes and it might just be that he pointed and said you go you know but I think he really loves Judah for the selflessness that he showed there so it said he sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen and they came into the land of Goshen which is Considered the best part of Egypt, it's in the northeastern section of the Nile Delta. And the reason why that makes it such a good area is you not only have all the fertility and the crops and everything of the Nile, but it's the closest to the rest of the major civilizations in the ancient world. Because So if you were, if you were looking at wealth and trading partners, you had the Kushites that were to the south of Egypt. And that was basically it. But to the north and the northeast, you had all sorts of empires. You had the Elamites and the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Hittites will come and you have the Canaanites. And so there's a massive amount of trade that would be on the northeastern side of Egypt. And so it gets the benefit of all that. So it's not just you've got access to abundant food and crops and livestock and and grazing lands, but also trade coming through there. And so when Pharaoh is saying, okay, where am I going to situate Joseph's family? He says, you're getting the very best spot where all the wealth is.
1: And that's a favor Joseph had with Pharaoh, right? Correct. Because that's a crazy. I mean, if you think about that, Pharaoh didn't have to do this. I think they would have been happy with whatever plot of land they gave him as long as they kept up food. But this is really kind of a wild scenario that God is setting up.
0: Yeah, completely. And so you, you see Joseph meant the world to this Pharaoh because he essentially saved the legacy of his regime. You know, this pharaoh, Amenemhat III, is who I believe this is, is going to be known for having the, you know, the abundance of wealth. He changes all of Egypt. Power gets consolidated around him. He has massive building projects. And by the way, he builds his pyramid, we talked about this before, 100 yards or so away from the Bar Youssef. You remember what that means? Mm-hmm. the canal of joseph that joined thanks for nile. bailing me out yeah <laughs> <laughs> that took the nile river into the fayum oasis where they had all this extra farmland that joseph had discovered mm-hmm. and so this is incredible that he would give the best in the, in the land of egypt and there's even a one of pharaoh's officials that we know of from this time and the only recording writing we have from the reign of this pharaoh from this official says that this pharaoh impoverished his own people for the advantage of others, which is an interesting thing because where would that make sense as we see what happens in today's story, just to blow the ending. The, the Egyptians are going to be enslaved here. They're going to be driven down into poverty. All the wealth is given to pharaoh and Egypt. And then this group of Israelites that are coming in, they get all the wealth. They get all the best land and everything else. So it's interesting that when you go back in history, you find this writing that says he impoverished his own people for the advantage and the benefit of others,
1: foreigners. And we've talked about that the Egyptians detested foreigners in all facets. Correct. So you wouldn't find this in a normal Egyptian regime because it would go against everything they believed.
0: Yep. They were absolute, they were very exclusive as a Mm -hmm. race of people. They did not intermingle and they wanted to preserve their own bloodlines, which, and you'll see. Later on, like if we go into Exodus and you learn what happens with the Hyksos what ha- which is a group of people that seizes power in the north from from the Egyptians with time, that only grows, and they become more and more like nope we 're not going to intermingle we 're not going to 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 have children with other races, and so you see that so the fact that Pharaoh not only gives the best part of the land to foreigners but to a group of people in a profession that was detested in the ancient world, as we're going to see in today's pas- passage, it's pretty stunning. Mm-hmm. Like It's totally surprising. The favor is going to the least you know, deserving, or I guess the, the least expected people. And that is another one of these themes that you find consistently throughout the story of redemptive history. It's always the people, it's always the underdogs that God champions always seems to be that way
1: and the fact that god's going to persevere his people no matter what like the faithfulness of god in all of this because this is extreme i mean Mm -hmm. joseph interpreting dreams his family coming back and having transformation you know just step by step it's god's faithfulness just to make sure this family the chosen family of god succeeds
0: that's right and so one of the things we talked about last week as well on that point not to harp in the review part for too long but one of the things, when he looks at Jacob, and Jacob is like, do you really want me to go down to Egypt? And you remember Abraham's dream, you're going to be enslaved somewhere for 400 years. And Jacob's like, Am I, is it safe for me to leave the promised land? Like, I don't want to be that guy. I don't, want to, I don't want my people enslaved. And God says, I'll be with you. And they go to Egypt, and they're enslaved. And you're like, wait a minute, God. But God is taking them to Egypt precisely for the reason you mentioned. The Egyptians would not intermingle. And so, by necessity, kind of coercion, the Israelites don't assimilate often to the Egyptian culture. Their, their culture is preserved. They continue to circumcise their children. They remain faithful to God. Not because, you know, even if they wanted to assimilate and lose their distinctives in that culture, the Egyptians wouldn't have them. And so they become from 70 people to 2 million people. And God is actually using the wickedness of the Egyptians. To preserve his people, to launch them out into the world as a nation. Mm-hmm. You know, when they go to Sinai and receive the law, it's fascinating how God works. It's absolutely fascinating. So, verse 29, it says, Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father in Goshen. And again, you notice. Now that he's had this restoration, this reviving of the soul, he's heard that Joseph is alive, you notice that the name changes from being consistently Jacob and now it's consistently Israel again. So here it is.
1: It goes back to Jacob though, so I don't know. It does. It, okay. But it's it's okay, like in this moment.
0: You're seeing it okay. here. And here you go, he goes so he goes to Israel, his father in Goshen, he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while.
1: Because what's the timetable between this now? How long did
0: he weep? No, not how long did he weep, <laughs> other than this family
1: weeps all the time.
0: <laughs> yeah, no kidding. They are a family of weepers. So Joseph, just, just to refresh, Joseph is enslaved at the age of 17. He's going to be enslaved and in prison. We don't know exactly how long those two things divide up, but slavery and, and imprisonment is 13 years. At the age of 30, he's exalted. At the age of 37, the famine begins. They've already come once now they're they're coming again and they go back and get Jacob so we're talking
1: 21 22 years okay and this is the first time they've seen each other in that correct
0: wow and Joseph you got you know his brothers betrayed him the brothers kept it a secret didn't tell dad just kidding he's alive he's down in Egypt so when Joseph hears the brothers talking about how grieved their dad had been it's the first time that he's had any sense that the family misses him at all and that's why he runs off and weeps. And so now that he's seeing his dad and he knows you know, that he wasn't forgotten that his dad has spent 22 years in deep grief, it means all the more to him. And so he just falls on his dad's neck and just weeps. And I love that, that these are a weeping people. Yeah. You know, they feel deeply, you know. I, I mean, and, they've
1: also had some real extreme circumstances.
0: Yeah, but when you look at other ancient literature— You don't find this. Hmm. You you don't find the the deep sympathy. You don't. You frankly you don't find narratives like this. Everything is very. And then they you know did this glorious triumphant thing. You don't find the the raw sensitive heartache that you find in the scriptures of Genesis and ancient literature of the you know Bronze Age. You just you don't find it anywhere.
1: Yeah, because the classic history is written by the victors right which the bible comes to us in such a weird fashion because it's people writing about themselves in the worst ways they're, they're, they're terrible
0: you know it's it's what we keep apologizing for sorry we're making these people sound so bad yeah. but they made them you know the, the, when the bible is written they're making themselves sound bad because what's the message of the bible you're bad you're, you need a savior desperately you need a savior and god is faithful god's people are a mess but god is faithful and so when you see tenderness like this, this is very unique to admit this in something that's recorded in the ancient world. Like the Egyptians never record their losses. They, they don't record the, the tragedies. They only record what is glorious about them because they believe this is going to be what's kept around for eternity. We don't want bad things out there in the universe. Makes sense. Right? The Bible, totally different. Totally does. I mean, it's almost like they go out of their way to be like, we're really bad. Yeah.
1: You know? Let's detail our badness.
0: (laughs) Exactly. So verse 30, it says, Israel said to Joseph. So you get you get Joseph shown his emotion. Now you have Israel, Jacob saying, Oh, now let me die. Since I've seen your face and I know that you're still alive, like I I can die in peace now, knowing that you're okay. Like I've lived in utter turmoil needing to know what happened. All I got was the bloody coat, but now I know you're alive, that God has preserved you, exalted you to the right hand of Pharaoh. Like I could go any moment now with a smile on my face.
1: And as a father, like part of this is obviously the focus on Joseph in this moment, but even what we just talked about that, he's seen this transformation for his sons. And he now knows that Joseph is alive and Benjamin's okay. And Simeon's going to be out of prison mm-hmm. and the family's going to be set up for life. It seems in this moment, like, as the patriarch of a family you got to be like all right i i did what i could and everyone's going to be okay yeah and
0: you, and you got to imagine jacob the guilt he felt because joseph was already being attacked by the brothers for bringing bad reports and all that kind of stuff that he caused that yeah. he sent him out to do yeah and so it it was jacob who sent joseph to the place where he disappeared knowing that those brothers were already angry at him mm. And so probably feeling the guilt and the weight of that, like, is it my fault? Did I do that? Knowing that it's all okay and that it was, you know, God using this to work about the salvation of the world at the time from famine. You know, he's got to just feel a million cinder blocks off his shoulders here. So Joseph said to his brothers and his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds. Like, that's going to be a bombshell. <laughs> you know, That this is not a good thing. For they are, have been the keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and he says, what's your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So
1: It's a curveball at the end. yeah. Because right? you're thinking this is like, Make he's sure giving him them him info, because it'll be awesome. Yeah. He'll love you.
0: <laughs> so here's a little bit of fascinating history. Sorry, Will's giving me we'll the, see. the history face.
1: Sam thinks it's fascinating.
0: <laughs> what, true. So when you get to about... 1550 BC, there's a pharaoh that comes along whose name is Kamos, and he's talking about whether or not he needs to go to war to reclaim northern Egypt, right? Whatever. And his counselors come to him, and they say, no, 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 don't go to war with them. They're not causing problems for us, for up in the region of Goshen, they take care of all of our flocks. And so there's a little historical nugget that even down in Thebes and Memphis, where the pharaohs reigned later, even to that day, Hundreds, a couple hundred years after Joseph, the flocks of Pharaoh are still being taken care of up in Goshen. So this policy stuck. And so you see the brothers who come along. And what, what's Joseph saying, which is interesting, is like you got two strikes against you. First off, you're an Israelite, which means you're not an Egyptian. You're a foreigner. They're going to shun you or keep you at, at arm's length. But then tell them you're a shepherd too. (laughs) They'll really not want to have anything to do with you. You'll have your own land all to yourself. They won't want anything to do with you in the Mm -hmm. land of Goshen. It'll be all yours. Like, I think I could be wrong, but I think that's where Joseph is going here. Like, Pharaoh's not going to turn you away, but tell them you're shepherds. No one will have anything to do with you. The land will be all yours.
1: Yeah, they want to be as separate as possible, and this is just another thing.
0: Yeah, which is fascinating. It's and fascinating how this comes about.
1: Shows again how wise and kind of shrewd Joseph is. Like he's been this whole time. Like, I mean, he's good at this. Mm-hmm. I don't know what this is. Maybe he's it's brilliant. just life, but he's good at whatever he's doing.
0: Yeah. When when Pharaoh looks at him and says, "The spirit of God is in this guy," he's dead on. Yeah, like, like if
1: I needed a game plan for my life, I wish I could ask Joseph because he seems to be handling that for everybody at this moment. <laughs> like the world, the world is relying on Joseph, much less his family. Yeah.
0: He dissects everything so perfectly and like to where all the threads are just perfect. And obviously it's God working through him. Of but course. this guy, I know. We're not we have to say that yeah, though as pastors. <laughs> so but it's it's just absolutely obvious. And you know, God gets all the glory here. It's and it's it ain't it ain't Joseph, but fascinating how all of this turn of events is happening and God is gonna set aside this land at least for a time to where they're just exclusively blessed, wealthy, beyond all belief. Um, And it's interesting, by the way, this this reputation of shepherds, you know, Joseph is going to be around 1850 B.C., somewhere in that neighborhood. You fast forward a couple thousand years to the timeline of Jesus, and they're still considered like the, the yucky people of society, right? So it's a big deal that shepherds are the first one to come and celebrate the newborn king, and why does God want us to see that? Again, he goes after the outcast, the first people to come and celebrate the Lord that God says, Nope, I, my first worship choir, you know, my first worship audience, the choir's coming to the shepherds to pull them in, you know? And, and you see the same here. Like God is identifying his people are shepherds, you know, which. When we hear, we think, "Oh, shepherds are good." You know, as pastors, we consider ourselves shepherds, and Jesus is the good shepherd. But in the ancient world, they were considered shifty, seedy. You know, like they were always up to something. You, you, they weren't allowed to testify in court in Jewish times, like in in Jesus's days. Like that's how, that's what their reputation was. All right, so jumping into chapter forty-seven, it says, "So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh." My father and my brothers, with their flocks and herds and all that they possess, have come from the land of Canaan. They're now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Which ones do you think they were? Does it matter?
1: No, but I'd go from the top down, I think. Oldest? I'd go Reuben down. All right.
0: So all the the, the, the Leah, the Leah children? I don't know. It's just an interesting question. Like I, I'm kind yeah, of curious. Yeah, why only five? Why five. Like what, What's the? What are the significance other ones do? that? I don't know. Uh, there may not be any. So <laughs> let's he, make up one. Just kidding. <laughs> well, according to the zodiac, <laughs> no. So they took five men and presented them to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh said to his brothers, "What's your occupation?" And they said to Pharaoh, "Oh, your servants are, are shepherds, as our fathers were." And like you got to imagine Pharaoh's going, "Oh." That's nice.
1: And are they still pretty wealthy at this point?
0: Like, they would have come with a large flock and herds. So it's an interesting question because what happens, and this is the danger when you get to a famine. So we know that Jacob came back from the land of Laban with tremendous... Loaded. Loaded. Huge flocks. And yet, like, when you come to a famine, like, my response is, well, just... Slaughter some cows. Slaughter some cows, right? You you don't need grain. just You'll you'll be a, a... what is it? A meatitarian or what do uh, they call it? Carnivore diet. Carnivore diet, whatever, whatever it is. But there's there's like a somethingarian where you only eat meat. It's mm. kind of a funny. There's name, a pescatarian anyway. for
1: fish. There's a vegetarian. Uh, that's a
0: joking around one that makes vegetarians mad. Um, anyway, we probably shouldn't mention it. Anyway, I'll cut that part. <laughs> PETA out. will hear from <laughs> us. <laughs> so anyway, um, why not do that? And the reality is, when you have a famine, it not only hits your.
1: Oh, I see where you're going. Livestock doesn't have anything to what eat. What is
0: livestock going to eat? Because you've got a short time where all the grass dies or whatever. Plants die off. They're not getting water. And so you eat all that and it's like, okay, where do you take your livestock now? And if you don't find anything, they start falling out. And that's why in this conversation, they're, you know, they're bringing their livestock and that's important because they're taking from the abundance of the Nile up in the land of Goshen, which is pretty well irrigated you know, throughout the year because there's so many tributaries.
1: Mm-hmm. And they weren't slaughtering their livestock and freezing it. You know, so there was only so much you could do in right. that moment if they started to die.
0: Oh, that makes sense. So it's the same thing. You'll see You'll see here as we get further in this chapter where the Egyptians are having to sell off their livestock to get grain. So that's that was a kind of a normal thing. So Pharaoh doesn't seem all that jarred by the fact that they're shepherds. They said, we've come to sojourn in the land for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And so you almost get this because they've been to Egypt a couple times now, right? And now they're saying the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And it makes you think, okay, as bad as it was in Egypt and is in Egypt, it's like God put the pressure down on the land of Canaan and really forced us out of there. It's like God made sure that they, the story of redemption here was going to happen by not even letting them try to stay in Canaan. It was just way too severe. Um, and now, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you, the land of Egypt's before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen, and if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. And so that begins this policy that's actually going to remain that way for hundreds of years, where in the land of Goshen, they cared for Pharaoh's livestock. Verse 7, then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. So back, back to the question we mentioned like four episodes ago. You think you'll see this Pharaoh in heaven? Because remember, this is before it was like, you know, you got to put your faith in Jesus. Back then, it's I trust in the promises of God I'm, and look at his covenant.
1: I'd probably roll the dice. I'm saying 90-10. I'm in. You're, I'm 100%. He's there. I think so, too. And isn't the promise...
0: You remember when he looks at Joseph and says, the spirit of God's in this man? Mm-hmm. I mean, he does some other things. Like, we know historically, you know, we didn't have a monotheistic pharaoh in Amenemhat the third. So he still, you know, had... Worshipping Amun and
1: whatever. I mean, all their theology at this time was a little yeah, awry, pretty, so it yeah. can't be like. I Together. mean, Abraham came out of Ur, and how <laughs> long did that take him to correct trust anything? Correct,
0: but it's it's like he really recognizes God's blessing upon them, and he's totally submissive to what God wants to do through their family. It's and that was
1: part of the promise that I'm blessing the family of Abraham, so they can be a blessing to the world. Which mm-hmm. you know, I think gets interpreted a lot of ways, but I mean. Here we have Jacob blessing Pharaoh, which is a wild idea.
0: It's just It's fascinating how many times throughout history this happens, where you have a, a, a fan, somebody's going through oppression. The people of God are going through oppressed circumstances. You have a king that has the power to crush them. But because of God working through a faithful servant, the king' is, heart is turned and he shows favor upon the remnant and spares them from destruction. I mean, you see that with Nebuchadnezzar. After he destroys Jerusalem and he's given dreams and they're interpreted for him by Daniel and all of a sudden he's decreeing things in favor of the people of God or Cyrus or Darius or, you know, this Pharaoh. You see that again and again where you find these faithful people who God uses to bless in front of the powerful and the powerful people are like, yep, we're blessing them. Or what is it? Artaxerxes, who gives all the finances of Persia to go back to rebuild the city of Jerusalem simply because Nehemiah was faithful in front of him. You see this, like there's so many stories like that. So you never know when you being faithful in front of somebody who holds power and sway can be used to bless all the people of God. So it's it's just fascinating. That seems to be the way God works again and again. Just I lost my place again.
1: We're in verse 8.
0: So Jacob blesses Pharaoh, and then it says, And Pharaoh says to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning? You notice he says that? Do you read right past
1: that? I'm just trying to think about it, even what they're talking about here. So the days of the years of your life?
0: Yeah, how, how, how old are you? Yeah, Is basically what he's saying. And then I love the way Jacob restates this. He says, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. If you're a sojourner, what does that mean?
1: You're not home yet.
0: You're not home. So Jacob and Abraham and Isaac and all of the patriarchs have this very real sense that's like seared into them. This is not my home. We're not building palaces. We live in tents. We're looking forward to the better city that's to come, that God has laid up for us. I'm not home here. This this world is not my home. But if you're asking how long I've been alive... You know, 130 years. So few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And that word evil in Hebrew can mean tragic. So it's, you know, don't don't harp on evil. It, it has very much like there's been a lot of calamity around me, a lot of hard things. And in and, and Hebrew, that's translated evil a lot of times. So few and I'm going to say tragic have been the days of the years of my life and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my father's in the days of their sojourning. So I haven't lived as long as my dad's. Well, that sounds wrong now. My dad and his dad. You want to, Anyway, <laughs> moving right you stepped along. Stepped in that yourself. Yeah, I did. <laughs> so verse 10, and Jacob, by the way, do you know that in Egypt they had a particular number of years that was considered the blessed life? You're, did I mention this before?
1: You did. I don't know if it was when we were talking about something else or this. Is it, it 130 though? It's 110.
0: So Joseph so. is going to live 110 years, which the, and the Egyptians, there's like 20 different places where they write about this. So it's like a cultural thing. But it's 110 years is the blessed life. So Jacob looks like he's just out blessing them all. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, they've all, it's been yeah. short and tragic. <laughs> yeah. Not as long as <laughs> my 30 years. What? So, but anyway, Joseph is going to live exactly at 110, which is the Egyptian blessed life. And so it says, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt in the best of the land. Notice the repetition in the land of Ramses. What's Ramses predecessor. You remember? Avaris. So it's only named Ramses way later. It's initially Avaris. It's renamed Ramses way later. Um, as Pharaoh commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all of his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. So they're living the life. They got everything going for them. And so this chapter wants you to see a contrast. So the first part of the chapter is they go to Pharaoh. They're coming out of shambles, right? And Pharaoh's like, you're getting the best of everything. I'm going to overwhelm you with wealth. I'm going to give you as much food as you can handle. I'm going to give you all the land. You're going to be my shepherds. You don't have to worry about anything. Now pause and and get that into your mind. And now you go to verse 13 and you see just how radically different he treats his own people, which is bizarre um, because it's very different. It says and this is from Joseph's hand by the way. So I got I got a pause here because for you know apart from when he was a teenage boy being very arrogant, Joseph has been this model of faith. He's been unbelievable and and, and unjust suffering and, and slavery unbelievably faithful. You know people are coming to him. They recognize the spirit of God's all over him. When he goes to jail remar- falsely imprisoned, remarkably faithful incredibly godly guy. You watch the reunion with the family, unbelievably Christ-like in everything he does. And so every single character of scripture has a great collapse, a great fall. And the point of that, except for Jesus, but the entirety of the Old Testament is intended to wet your appetite for something better. You you look at Abraham and you are like oh this is the hero and then he fails you and then Isaac and then he fails you and Jacob's going to be it and he quickly fails you and Judah you know is uh, fails and here everybody that you look at in Scripture fails and probably one of the people who comes the closest to a just overwhelmingly righteous life is Joseph and we're about to get into the part of his life where I think he makes the biggest mistake and the longest lasting act of falling short of righteousness that we'll find in his life. So ready? We're about, I guess. We're about to see a darker side of Joseph that, that is sad. And so the question is, what do we learn from this? Okay. So verse 13, it says, now there was no food in all the land for the famine was very severe so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. So this is why when you study history, it's during this period in the 12th dynasty, where it used to be that, that Egypt had very kind of dispersed power. You had gnomes, which were like territories where everybody kind of had an equal voice, and it was it was very federalized, right? You know, power was out in the land, but under this particular dynasty, and especially during Amenemhat the Third's reign, all power becomes consolidated, almost like that Pharaoh had control of all wealth. Mm-hmm. Hmm, right? And so Joseph brings all the money into Pharaoh's house. Well, is that is that a good thing? Well, let's see. Maybe. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan... All the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? Our money is gone. And Joseph answered, like, what? what's the right thing to do here?
1: I mean, I know the story ends, but the right thing to do would be to give a starving people food if you have it. To I give? mean, you've already taken literally every cent from them. Yeah, they're broke. And they, like They that, got no money. And that's not like a metaphor, right? Like. There's everyone is walking around. They have no money on their hands because Joseph already has it all. Yeah, I mean,
0: he basically, uh, <laughs> if you want grain, give me what you got. Empty your pockets. And, and they're already I'm giving it all to Pharaoh. Mm. So now they're coming back before him and they're like, we got no money. Like, what do you want us to do? Are you just going to watch us die? And Joseph answered, give me your livestock. And I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for their horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And so that's, that's more than just like when we think of a cow out in the field, we think, oh, that's steak and hamburger, right? But for them, all of their livestock, that's industry. That's their tractors. You know, you you can't how do you plow the field anymore? How do you how do you do anything? You cannot be self-sustaining. You have no industry anymore. But now all of those animals are then consolidated to Pharaoh. And guess where they go, by the way? Guess who takes care of all of his ah, livestock? To right? Joseph's
1: family. So the
0: excess livestock that are not doing industry are all going up to Goshen. Gee, if I was an Egyptian, I might resent that quite a bit, right? And so now you have all the tractors are gone, all the beef, all the, you know, the money's gone. Now the industry's gone. What are the what, what are you going to do for a living now? You know, what are you what are you going to do for your land when the famine ends? You have nothing to to help till it or care for it. So he gives them food for that year, and it says in verse 18, when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said, We will not hide from my Lord that our money's all spent. <laughs> The herds of our livestock are my Lord's. There's nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Listen to what they say. Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh, and give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So what they're saying to Joseph is, you've taken all of our money, and you've given it to Pharaoh. You've taken all of our industry, and you've given it to Pharaoh. The only thing we have left that belongs to us is our private property. You can have that too. And oh, by the way, our personal liberty, you can have that too. And what does Joseph do? Takes it. Sounds good. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to another. Um, there's other translations that are a little bit more blunt, but it, and it says, and Joseph reduced the people of Egypt to slavery. And that's exactly right. And so here's the great irony. is hundreds of years before the Egyptians reduce the Israelites to slavery. It's a Hebrew. It's an Israelite that reduces the Egyptians to slavery. What do you do with that? We don't teach this in our Sunday schools.
1: No, this is, this is a skip passage.
0: So Joseph, like, so you got all these things where Joseph, <laughs> skip passage, it's a, good, it's a good term for it you got all these ways in which Jesus and Joseph are on the train tracks, right? Parallel to one another. You know, the father's, we're going to run through it again. The father's favorite son, right? Who among the 12 brothers is betrayed by the one whose name is Judah, the Hebrew form of Judas for 20 pieces of silver. And he is, his coat is stripped from him and made bloody. And he's sold down to the land of death and bondage and he's separated from his father who thinks that he's dead and he goes down there and he is falsely accused and he's thrown into a pit and he's between two criminals one of whom is redeemed the others restored all this sounding familiar right and so then out of that he is going to be exalted up to the right hand of pharaoh who the egyptians believed was god and he uses that position at the right hand of small g god to do what? To give life-giving bread to the people, to prepare a place for them when they come, his brothers. He's going to redeem them. He's eager to forgive them. And then you get to this part where the people are in desperate need and you find Joseph diverging from Jesus. Because in Jesus, when he gives the metaphor and he says, I'm the bread of life, right? You're going to die without me. Thank God, Jesus doesn't say, "Okay, now to get this bread of life, give me your money, give me your livestock, Lay, give me your lands, give me your your own autonomy." I'm gonna make I'm gonna reduce you to nothing. Like you find Jesus who comes and gives it freely out of a generous heart. And so, like, what is wisdom here? you know it's it's not to leave the people in desolation but it's also a very very strong warning that you do not entrust government with tremendous power because the government that favors your group of people one day <laughs> as you marginalize the other guess what eventually that shoe is going to be on the other foot and when power shifts now you're going to be the ones that are marginalized. So the Hebrews are fat and happy up in Goshen, right? Until the regimes change enough, and people are going, wait, "Wait, why are we the ones who are like this?" Let's go oppress them, and then everything goes. And it's like you know, the going back previous generations that you know were brilliant. It's, it's recognizing that a government that is big enough to give you everything you want is also strong enough to take everything you need, right? And that's the dangers that the Bible comes to and it's, it's giving you, you know, on both sides of the aisle, Republican and Democrat, there's a rebuke in this story and I don't want to go too political here, but what's the rebuke to the Republicans in this story? If you have people that are in desperate need of support, you can't just go, you know, free market, go starve. You know, (laughs) like the righteous thing to do is not to let them suffer you know, you, you can't just wash your hands and say, you know, that's their problem. You, we have an obligation to one another. We are our brother's keeper. But then what's the flip side? What's the rebuke in here of democratic policies? Do not trust the government to be your savior. The more you feed the government, the more power it has, the more that it controls everything. Do not expect it to use that power for good purposes because as Genesis has taught us, there's no unrighteous. There's no one righteous. Everybody, if they're given unchecked power, is going to use it for their own selfish advantage, and they will exploit and abuse everybody. And I don't care who you are on planet Earth—you're not above that. King David, who's described as a man after God's own heart, blows this right. And you know, oh, he's you know Bathsheba—I'll yeah, take her. Oh, Uriah—I'll yeah, put him to death. That's David. And he's corrupted by power. Like there's nobody that's immune to this, and so we, you have to come to the t- the table here and recognize that there's there's wisdom to be had for everybody here, or to be drawn by everybody.
1: That's good in a weird way. What do you mean? I don't know. You just don't normally see why why a weird way. Maybe, not that it's good in a weird way. It just. I bet you most people have not looked at that part of the story in that regard as something so pertinent to modern times.
0: Yeah, the older I get, the more libertarian I feel. I just, I I don't want government in charge of anything. (laughs) You know, Like, do the bare minimum that keeps society functioning, but I don't want you determining everything about my life. Because you're the government and you screw everything up. Am I allowed to say
1: that? Yeah, I guess.
0: I think that's pretty fair. Yeah. And it doesn't matter what letter you have after your name. Like, they're both consistently screwing everything up.
1: Yeah. And it's the Bible's pushing back on both directions, just like you said. This is not God saying I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat. He's saying, you know, neither of these are working because people's souls are broken and messy and they're going to do the messy thing Mm -hmm. most of the time. And that, by the way, like, when we
0: look at the way that our country was crafted for, for, You know, going back to the the beginning and all the messy parts of it, one of the things that they recognized that lies at the heart of the way everything was structured was this idea of checks and balances, which which nobody had ever had before. But you know where that comes from is a, a basic recognition that man has fallen so nobody gets total control. You know, we don't want the executive standing alone. So we're going to have these, you know, the legislative and the judicial that can check them. And we don't want them standing alone because mob rule can be every bit as bad as a tyrant. And we don't want, you know, like, so they built this system where they recognize man has fallen. We need no one to have control. The people need to be able to represent themselves without it being bloodthirsty mob rule, you -hmm. know? And so that's the reason I think why it's the longest lasting constitution in the history of the world is because it protected itself against the dangers of humanity. That's why, like, if you look at the bill of rights, which I love, right? What is it doing? It's not giving you rights. It's saying government, you can't say anything about our exercise of religion. Government, you can't thwart our free speech. Government, you can't intervene when we assemble. Government, you can't Inhibit our right to petition. Government, you can't take our guns. Government, you can't do unreasonable search and seizures. Government, you can't overrule the states. Like Everything about the Bill of Rights is looking at a big, centralized, powerful government in Washington, D.C. saying, slap on the wrist, stay in your place, because you're going to be tempted to use your power to drive people into the dirt. Mm. So leave us alone. I mean, that's essentially what the Bill of Rights is doing. Our rights come from God, not you. So shut up and go away.
1: Yeah, it's a protecting of rights and a giving of rights because they don't have the power to give them. Completely, rights. Okay. like that was Makes part sense.
0: of the you know for all the ways that that founding generation did bungle stuff. That was one of the brilliant things. Our rights come from God, not from man. No man can take them away. And when you look at the good things that came out of our country in its you know hundreds of years. <laughs> Part of the, the basis for overthrowing great evils like slavery was to say our rights don't come from man. They come from a creator. They're inalienable. You have a right to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And that was at the basis of the argument for the overturning of slavery. That's at the basis of the argument for like the Nuremberg trials when you were going after the Nazis. Everything that the Germans did was legal according to their country's laws. So how what do you appeal to to say, no, that's evil? No, no, no. Rights come from God, and it doesn't, there's a higher power that sources our rights, and no man, no government, no regime can take them away. And that was part of the found, you know, premises of all successful governments. And the moment that you see that fading, which is kind of where we've been for the last however many decades, where we're walking away from God and we think we're smart enough to walk on our own, what do we appeal to? to determine right and wrong anymore. If nobody agrees on absolutes, it's it's whoever shouts the loudest. Whoever Mm -hmm. has the most power gets to determine what's right and wrong. It's scary. And as whichever side, like whichever one of our sides, if they're godless, if it's, you know, whichever one gets the most power, they're inevitably going to use that power to exploit the other side. And we got to get away from that. And that's one of, the, one of the great tragic lessons that Joseph learns here is, yeah, you, you were able to do this, and your people got really privileged by your policies. For now. For now. Mm-hmm. But for 400 years to follow, or at least centuries to follow, what you did set up a government that was powerful enough to drive your people into slavery. So the message is take care of people. Love people. Don't let people starve. Look after the poor, the downcast, the downtrodden. But do not entrust the government with enough power because they will turn on you like a snake. (laughs) You know.
1: Yeah, and I think it's. I'm off
0: my soapbox now.
1: Yeah, I think it's kind (laughs) of scary. I don't know why I'm thinking this, Uh, but for a guy like Joseph to get a little bit of power and to take it all is a terrifying thing. When we, when I think about me or I think about anyone else. Because we've just seen him be oh, so faithful to God in prison, and faithful brilliant. to God, brilliant, the s- smartest guy that we see. And all of a sudden he just gets a little taste of power and he just takes it all. Yeah, and I don't even know if he means to.
0: And that's, that's the scary thing when you look at how these things happen is so often tyrants come along out of the best motives. Mm. You know, the best motives of the heart. If the, I, I know best. If people will just trust me, I'm going to make our nation even better. Just trust me. And they may have the best motive not thinking this is going to have a really oppressive evil outcome. You know, I think some of the the worst tyrants in history, now some of them are just outright wicked to the bone. But then there's some that you look at and it's just folly. It's utter folly, you know, with good intentions. C.S. Lewis has this quote that goes something like, you know the worst tyrants are those that think that they're doing you good, you know because it's harder to prick their conscience to stop if they think no, I know better for them i'm I'm gonna continue doing good for them. It's harder to say, "Stop, like you're crushing people if yeah. they're like, "No, nah, I know best. It's easier to look at evil
1: and be like, "That's evil, stop, yeah, then oh no, this could be good one day just keep keep following along,
0: yeah, so the bottom line from from my perspective is government is. I don't know how to say this. I just want to say I'm not
1: co-branding with (laughs) Sam right now. I'm too young. So if you listen to this, Will said very little. Yeah. I think I agree. This prison term will be all mine. (laughs) Yeah.
0: One day. Um, (laughs) No, but it's government with unchecked power is outrageously dangerous. And people of both sides, both political sides would do themselves well to say, we should not expand the power of the government to where, you know, it used to be that, that government feared the people, right? And now people fear the government. And the government should never be so powerful that either side is going, oh, my gosh, whoever wins the presidential election, is it, this is going to destroy my life. You know, I can't. It shouldn't be that important, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> they shouldn't have that much power to where it could divide a nation like we're divided. Yeah, that's That's my opinion.
1: And like you told me, you taught me this. So again, this is Sam's teaching. Um, What we learned from COVID is government never gives anything back that they've taken.
0: True. I mean, I can think of a million other examples, but it's true. Like it never wants to give it back. They got a good grasp when
1: they take it. It's hard to.
0: And that's another one of those things where it's like, it can be oppressive to where it's really crushing people's lives. And it's done with, you know, the best of intentions. We mm. know better than you, you know, so we're going to shut down your business or we're not going to let you gather for worship or whatever the case might be. And they think they're doing the best thing for you. Well, it turns out it wasn't the best thing and masks don't do, you know. And anyway, well, I don't want to go down that yeah. rabbit trail. We're out. Yeah, I, that might get, I might yank Cut that, that one. Well. <laughs> that might get yanked.
1: We're going to see if Spotify listens to this. We'll get another E. Remember we <laughs> talked about the... The gross scenes of Genesis, we got an explicit. So maybe this one will get.
0: Yeah, I wonder who mentioned that. Like somebody had to say.
1: I think it was probably because we said the word rape over and over again. I think it was the rape of Dinah that we oh, got. The that. rape of Dinah. Yeah. And I think they probably just have a keyed in word that if yeah. some software ever hears the word rape that it's it's yeah. explicit.
0: Yeah. Any thoughts?
1: Yeah, you're. I think it's
0: good. <laughs> okay.
1: <laughs>
0: Fine. You're third are we, on the list. Are we, Sam's are going <laughs> down first, <laughs> then me, <and laughs> then, then we're Britney. gonna say Brittany was there. <laughs> Brittany taught, all, <laughs> taught everything yeah. that we're teaching. This is all straight from her. Yeah. <laughs> so Joseph reduces the people to slavery, and then verse 22, it says, Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. So the only ones allowed to have private property are those that work for the government.
1: <laughs> yeah, because I have to say, works, this, is right? a, this is a government-based religion. If we're talking in those
0: terms, and know yeah. it's different. and Yeah, completely. So, I mean, anyway, I don't want to go down that rabbit trail. But We've yeah, the, the priests of Egypt were basically just there to prop up Pharaoh. And, well, he was a god. Yeah, correct. If
1: your priests are pointing anyone towards God and you're their god, they kind of have to agree with you. Correct. So, yeah. verse 23, Then Joseph said to the
0: people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you. You shall sow the land, my land, which means it's my crops and you're just my workers on them. And at the harvest, you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh and four fifths shall be your own as seed for the field and as food for yourselves and your households and as food for your little ones. And so basically what he's erecting here is a feudal system. Eighty twenty, though. I, I own it all, but you can eat, you know, most of the stuff that you grow, but it's not really yours. You're just stewards on my land. And they said, and here's, here's what the wild part, and this is true in history that when you get, and this is so instructive, when you have great crisis moments in history, the people are always so grateful for tyranny.
1: Yeah, you nails them out short term.
0: Yeah, I mean, you think of think of how did Hitler come to power? You know, you have the Great Depression. You have all the you know post World War One crisis of Germany, their collapse of their currency, and what does he do? He comes along and says, "I'm going to fix it all, and I'm going to give you this and this and this," and he he basically overhauls the whole system of government, and what are the Germans doing, by and large? Especially the youth are going, hooray, this guy's the greatest. Let's follow him into war and cheer him on. And it's like, you're not supposed to cheer for that. But when you're in the middle of crisis and somebody is saving you, listen to what they do. They praise Joseph. You have saved our lives. May it please, my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. Yeah, we're glad to be slaves. At least we can be slaves. But it's a generational slavery that they've just consigned all future generations to. Hmm. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priest alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it, and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. So this is garden language, remember? Uh, There's places in Genesis where the garden of the Lord, the garden of Eden, is compared to the well-watered land of Egypt. And so now they're in the garden. It's like a new chapter. We're starting over again, which Genesis likes to do. So we're in a garden, and they are being fruitful and multiplying. What's that making you think? We're back at the beginning. We're given a new chance. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel, Jacob, must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And he answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. In other words, he's sick and dying. And what we're going to find in the next chapter, which we probably might not get into, is when Joseph dies, those 17 years that he spent in Egypt, he's a radically different man. When he dies, all of Egypt mourns. All the major officials go to his burial. They're all weeping. They mourn for some outrageous amount of time. And it's the first time in J- Jacob's life that when he leaves an area, they're not either chasing him to kill him or, you know, like really angry Cheering at him. him. Off, yeah. Yeah, right. So you see in the latter years of Jacob, this guy who had been a, a scoundrel and a messy person, because of all that grief and suffering and everything else. It forged him into a very humble, very likable, redeemed, wonderful man to where even the Egyptians who are not fond of foreigners praised him and mourned him, which gives you great relief from knowing the earlier side of Jacob, right? The the unlikable side of Jacob. When he dies, God had made him into a Dramatically different man.
1: And his desire not to even be buried in Egypt. Like, he's like, this is not the land of promise. I don't even want my bones in this place. Like, <laughs> right. get me back out of here eventually. That's right. And even to have the faith that there is a future outside of Egypt is pretty cool. Mm-hmm.
0: And there, there was, there's, the Egyptian mythology would teach that if you're buried outside the land of Egypt, you might lose your afterlife. And so when Jacob says that to Pharaoh and everybody else, what he's saying like, is your mythology is a bunch of junk like, my God is the one who brings resurrection. I do not want to be buried here. I don't want, and, and Joseph is going to say the same, same thing. I want you to carry my bones up out of here. Um, but that shows you that even in the midst of getting all this blessing from the hand of Pharaoh, they did not bow the knee to Egyptian mythology. They stayed true to their beliefs. They stayed true to the Lord. And trusted in him and his power of resurrection, which is pretty awesome.
1: Yeah, even fair at this point, it's like, "Eh, I get (laughs) that. Yeah. Like, you could be right here. Yeah, your God. Seems to be going pretty well. Your God's pretty impressive. Yeah. So,
0: yeah. So, you see, all of these characters, you've got the 12 sons, you've got Jacob, you've got, you know, four generations of this patriarchal family that are kind of coming to this climax before the slavery. And it's just a reminder that as much as they've been through, Jacob knows that he can trust his Lord. Like, even when I die, I want to be back in the land that God promised me because I trust him for resurrection. And so it's, you know, the brothers have looked at a God and they've seen, this is a God who can take messes like us and all of our wickedness and all of our past that should have cut us off from the promise. That God is outrageously faithful, and after all the twists and turns, and you know the points where you want to go, oh my gosh, why does God keep these people? You just see that His faithfulness not only wins, you know, and He doesn't just embrace the scoundrels, but with time He transforms these scoundrels into people that the world was made better by, hmm. um, and that's a beautiful thing, and that's a promise that we can cling to. Is not only that that he'll take scoundrels like us, right? (laughs) But then in the meantime, before we get to glory, you know, he has a purpose for us here. He's going to use us. He's going to redeem us. He's going to make us more into his image to bring a little flavor of heaven down to this earth. And if we can learn from them rather than learning the hard lessons from ourselves, all the better, you know? So anyway, thank you so much for joining us today on this episode. We look forward to Joining you next week as we close out our series on Genesis, Um, like and subscribe to our podcast. Give us a good rating. Do all that normal jazz that Mark was way better at saying that I always mix up in my brain. And if
1: you don't like this, just don't rate it and stop listening.
0: That's correct. That's correct. Uh, Anyway, it's been fun. We'll see you next week. God bless. We hope you enjoyed your time with us, and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com outofwater.